Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. This murder, of course, losing Natalie, I mean, that had a disastrous effect on all the kids. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. The kids at John Paul were told in assembly to be careful, but I don't think anyone, certainly including Natalie Russell, thought that this would happen at 2.30 on a Friday afternoon on your way home from school. She walked down the bike path. Dania had seen her approach and he'd been up there earlier and he'd cut several holes in. He jumped through a hole 
waited till she had walked past. He jumps out and grabs her and pulls her through a hole. The uniformed police go down this laneway, they see three holes cut in the cyclone wire fence. In one of the entries, they find under the bushes the uh, school uniform body of Natalie Russell. And mm. her throats have been savagely cut. Everyone starts saying, holy hell, you can't keep denying he's no serial killer here. The buck stops with us, so we're the ones who have to then give answers to the community and to the family. You know, and ultimately, we're going to do our best. And that's the hardest bit. After we do the crime scene where the body is, we sit with the deceased family for hours and hours. We had... Um Policewoman sit with me all night, that night. Two Two policemen sitting outside in the freezing cold in their car, which I didn't know that because my mind then wasn't wasn't thinking about that. But uh, no, whenever we hear anyone um, say something about the police, we always stick up for them because they're just absolutely perfect. These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash Ost True Crime Pod. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Some forms of arson are people who are setting fires because they think maybe some land needs to be cleared. Yeah, so it's kind of it's a very it's a very kind of practical, instrumental reason. It's not really psychological in that sense. It's it's you know there's this bit of bush and the the, the, the land council or the government hasn't done what they should have done. So I'm going to make sure that it's not dangerous and I'll I'll do a backburn. Up until very recently, 2009's Black Saturday bushfires were considered the worst in Australia's history. In 2012, 42-year-old Brendan Sukalok was found guilty on 10 counts of arson causing death for lighting one of those fires in Churchill in the Latrobe Valley. He was sentenced to a non-parole period of 14 years. Later in this episode, Emily talks to Chloe Hooper, whose book The Arsonist is a detailed account of what happened in Churchill that day. But first, Australia's cult of climate change denial is rushing to embrace arson as the one true cause of our current record-breaking fire season. Because it couldn't possibly be the exact chain of events predicted for the last 30 years by lots of experts, including economist Ross Garno, who wrote in 2008 that by 2020, Australia's bushfire seasons would start earlier, end later, and generally be much more intense. As is generally the case, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Dr Troy McEwen is an Associate Professor in Clinical and Forensic Psychology at Monash University. Her research is focused on the assessment and treatment of stalking, domestic violence and arson. I gave her a call to ask her about the psychology of arson because it's clearly a factor in our fire season. And in particular, I've noticed a few arrests being reported in places away from the bushfire zones, which made me wonder if bushfires inspired firebugs. So the question of does lots of focus on arson in the media lead people to commit arson? I think that's a fascinating question and one that I think no no one is very well placed to answer. Um, there's been a little bit of people, people talked a little bit about the idea of copycat. So, you know, that there is some level of, you know, the more it's talked about out in the world, that there might be people who that does, you know, inspire or lead them to engage in the behaviour. But, you know, the reality, 
extrapolating a little bit from other kinds of offending behaviour, it's not going to be people who've never thought about arson before who that affects. It's going to be people who already maybe have an interest and have a thought and maybe have already done it before. And that then at times when it's very much the focus in the media, that attention and that it's constantly in their vision, that might, um, you know, you can imagine that that might lead some people to become more, you know, think about it more, more focused on it. And then that translates into behaviour for some people. Um, we don't really know, however. I mean, a colleague of mine talks about it from, you know, and, and in my own work with people who've deliberately set fires, you know, he talks about the idea of like, you know, the kid in the candy store kind of effect. There's so much and it's so overwhelming and it's just there. And, oh, you know, you get so excited by it. Uh, and there are people for whom that is very much the case. That's what I was thinking, that the excitement for, which is a weird word to use, unless you are excited <laughs> by it. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, the excitement of it might inspire you to uh, That's get right. involved and actually do it. Yeah, or even just not even inspire you, but more just kind of, you know, it sounds a little bit facetious, but I sometimes talk with people about the idea of it's like when you're when you're on a diet and all you're thinking about is chocolate cake and then someone puts chocolate cake in front of you. You know what I mean? And it's, it, it's much harder to resist. So it, it's kind of, it's, it's right there. So you kind of do it and the self-control factors might come in as well. But the reality is we don't really know. We haven't done that kind of research. Um, that kind of research is really in its infancy with, with fire setters, unfortunately. I heard one report on the news of a person being arrested for arson who was in his 70s. And for some reason that shocked me. No. Oh. <laughs> is there a profile? Well, look, it kind of depends because it, arson happens, well, what legally is called arson is, you know, it can include a lot of different things, right? Because you, you legally, some forms of arson are people who are setting fires because they think maybe some land needs to be cleared, yeah? So it's kind of, it's a very, it's a very kind of practical, instrumental reason. It's not really psychological in that sense. It's, it's you know, there's this bit of bush and the, 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 the land council, the government hasn't done what they should have done, so I'm going to make sure that it's not dangerous and I'll, I'll do a backburn. Yeah, I never thought about that, actually. Yeah, you're right. Right? Yeah. Um, but it's quite different to what people think of when they think of a firebug in the you know, colloquial terms. So that's quite a different concept. Um, obviously, people who I would work with or who we do research with, we're more interested in some ways in the more people psychologically driven kind of arson. But certainly a significant proportion of arson that happens is for things like crime concealment. So burning cars, you know, burning crime scenes to, to, to stop people finding evidence, that kind of stuff. So there are... There are kind of, in a really broad sense, two different kind of patterns that you see. So what you might call antisocial arson, so people who are doing other kinds of crime, they're involved, they've got other issues in their life, and arson is one of a series of crimes they commit. And sometimes it might be connected to the other crimes, and sometimes they might do it for other reasons. They're, they're drunk or they're bored or they're, you know, they kind of flick a cigarette or they start burning things because it's interesting, you know, but it's kind of just a sideline. And then you have people who... Um, where they've really got an interest in fire and the fire itself has a has a stimulating kind of effect. So I'm not, I'm not talking about sexual effects, not no, pyromania necessarily, but the fire is, is an interesting thing to them. And so they're, they're much less likely to have other sorts of offences. It really is about fire for them. We have a regular guest called Narelle Fraser who worked in sex crimes. She was a detective in sex crimes. Yep. And she says that they did see a correlation oftentimes between arson and sex crimes. Um, that yeah. a lot of that sexual predators had uh, committed arson earlier in their lives. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's also because arson's a really common offence for young people. Mm, okay. <laughs> so there's a certain amount of just um, some research that a colleague of mine did um, a couple of years ago now, but here in Victoria, we actually got a big sample over a thousand people who'd gone through the courts for arson. And we actually looked at who had, you know, what other offences had people done? And, you know, were there these kind of unique fire setters? And were there people who had fire setting with other things? And were there any differences between them? That kind of research. And what we found and what other people around the world have found is that the majority of um, people who who are caught for arson actually have other offences as well um, of all sorts, not just sex, sex offences. In fact, sex offences are actually quite uncommon. It's, it's usually other kinds of offences, like theft offences, drug offences, some violent offences, but not as commonly. Um, so for people who set fires, uh, fire is actually quite rarely the specific offence that they that they engage in. It's much more common to have lots of other offending as well. And that actually kind of fits with what we see with people who get caught for arson because they have kind of all the risk factors you would expect for people who commit other offences. You know, they've often got really awful upbringings. They've got sometimes mental health issues, actually even more so than other offenders. People who set fires have more mental health issues. Um, they've often got drug abuse, abuse issues. Um, they might have homelessness issues, things that you see commonly in, in populations of people who offend. Do we have a, a particular arson issue in Australia? How are our stats compared to international stats? It's, it's hard to generalise because for two reasons. Um, one, we don't... So when, when you look at arson offences, there are heaps of different offences that could be arson, but you can't see the fire because they get charged with a property damage offence, but it's not specified that it was arson. Okay, so it's hard to measure. We certainly seem to have a bit of a problem with vegetation arson in the sense that there are many thousands of deliberately or certainly suspiciously set vegetation fires in Australia every year. Um, I'm I'm saying tens of thousands. This is a really common thing. However, that's equally the case in the United States and even in the United Kingdom where you wouldn't think of fires being a real issue. They also see like haystack fires, these kinds of things. Most of those fires aren't great, big, huge bushfires. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about small fires, um, fires that are lit in parks. They're deliberately set, but they don't cause a vast amount of damage. Mm. Okay, So we, we, we do have a problem with that. Whether we have a problem more generally with arson that's different to anybody else, I don't. my hypothesis would be going in, no, it's probably about the same here as it is elsewhere. But that said, maybe there are differences here that do make it different. Maybe there are, you know, um, differences in some cultural factors or something like that that might be a bit different. Yeah, now that you mention it, the kids and I saw a, ra- a roundabout near our house on fire mm. once, I remember, mm. you know, a year ago or something. Yeah. It struck me as just really weird, but that would count as a vegetation fire, would That it? would be a vegetation fire. Now, whether it was deliberately lit or it could have been accidentally lit, mm. right? Because, of course, a lot of fires, in fact, research from the Australian Institute of Criminology suggests that most fires are actually caused by human intervention. Bushfires, that's different. They're more likely to be naturally caused. But things like flicking the cigarette out the window. So anywhere near a roadside, you know, things like flicking cigarettes, you know, broken glass on a really hot day can, can lead to fires. Sparks coming from vehicles, um, you know, as we saw the, the fire in Western Australia earlier this month, that was caused by a, a vehicle defect that led to sparks that set off grass and off it went. So anything around kind of humans, um, we, we, we do tend to be, you know, a bit of a risk factor for fires, even if we don't intend to be. But we put those in the human intervention column. Yeah. So that's how the statistics, again, can sort of yep. lean that way, but it doesn't mean that it's a person going out with a lighter. That's exactly right. So a real, uh, you know, but but still, still a significant proportion probably are like we know probably at least ten percent, ten to fifteen percent are people. It's quite clearly intentional. Maybe another third 
it looks suspicious, but we don't know. And then another significant portion are accidental. So it's a human did it, but they didn't mean to do it. And then a smaller number are naturally caused. I noticed that another area of your research is stalking. <laughs> yes. Is there You've a reason? Looking up me on the internet, goodness. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I have. I've been <laughs> you know, going to read your articles before I spoke to you. And so that's another area of intense interest for you and in research. Are they related in any way? Is there a reason why you are into fire starters and stalkers? Mm-hmm. I do. I do family violence as well. I'm a yeah. all rounder. <laughs> no, um, look. If you think about it, they look like very different behaviours on the surface. Mm. Okay, all these kinds of behaviours, but there are fundamental similarities between these kinds of uh, interpersonal offending. So, people who do these things, you know, they seem to have a, a cluster of of common kind of attitudes and beliefs and behaviours. So that stuff I was talking about before about being antisocial. Quite a lot of people who do all these different behaviours they actually do more than one. So your stalkers are also your fire setters are also your sex offenders are also your family violence offenders, right? So it's, there's a group in the middle that's everything, okay? And then you have your more unique offenders. So the ones I was talking about before with the fire setters, they have just that interest in fire. And equally with stalkers, you have people who just have stalked and they do that once and they do that, they target somebody for a period and then they stop and they never do it again and they don't commit other offenses. So for me as a psychologist, one of the things I'm really interested in is how can we understand the psychological factors that lead to offending in general and how that and then what is it that differentiates someone who offends by let's say sexual offending or you know stalking from someone who doesn't do that they just do sexual offending yeah so that's kind of an area of interest of mine so so and the stalking is much the same so in in stalking that's a particular interest what is it about people who just who just stalk and that's all they ever do they only stalk and they might do it repeatedly with different victims but equally, they might target lots of, you know, the same person for a very long time, but they never commit any other offence. And that person's quite different psychologically and, and, and kind of practically to manage to work with to try and stop the behaviour. That's very different to someone who's stalking as part of a, a wider pattern of other offending behaviours as well. So that's kind of, you yeah, know, that's kind of what I spend my life thinking about. <laughs> Fascinating. So, yeah, well, you know, keeps me entertained. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you treat someone, let's say someone listening knows a fire bug, has a mm. child, has a teenager mm. who okay. who likes yep. lighting fires? Well, if you've got uh, – if there's a young person who, who you think might have been setting fires or, or you know, um, certainly the first thing to do would be um, call your local fire brigade. The fire, fire services right around Australia, they actually run – fire awareness and intervention programs for young people. So it's, it's, there, there are absolutely interventions that are run by fire services, not for adults, but just specifically for young people. Some of those also involve, you know, education with parents as well. So that would definitely be the first port of call. Uh, it's, you know, call your local fire brigade and say, look, you know, I'm a bit worried about my, my kid's interest in fire or behaviour with fire. They're not going to get in trouble for that. You know, they're not going to get charged or anything, particularly if they're, you know, if they're, they're a child. That's not, that's not what's happening. But it's it's really important um, if you're worried about your kids' behaviour around fire. It's really important to to intervene in that and and to help them learn um, positive fire behaviour because we know working with adults and I don't work with kids. I just work with adults. But we know working with adults that adults who develop unhelpful kinds of ways of thinking about fire. So they they start to believe that you know fire is is interesting and fun and maybe it's a good way to feel better about yourself or it's a good way to get attention, these kinds of things. Those kinds of, that kind of learning starts when you're a kid. So most adults who set fires, many of them have set fires as kids and they've learnt that this is an effective way of getting their needs met. So it's really important if you've got a kid and you're worried about their fire setting that you do you do, do something about it. Don't just play it, you know, pass it off as, as, as kids play. 
lots of kids do play with fire, but if they're doing it repeatedly and it's, you know, or it's caused any damage or anything like that, definitely talk to your local fire brigade and, and try and, and ask for information about your juvenile fire awareness programs. That's amazing. I, w- I never knew that. I would never have thought in a million years that they would have programs. Oh, absolutely. Because it's, it, it really is a very common behaviour. It, it's not uncommon for kids to play with fire uh, and it's not inherently bad for kids to play with fire, but it's important to intervene because, you know, as everyone knows, it can be dangerous. Mm. And then in a small number of cases, and it is a very small number of cases, that behaviour as a kid can develop into problematic behaviour as an adult. And we want to, you know, very much try and prevent that at the earliest possible stage. Well, this brings me to a stereotype that I'm embarrassed to ask about. But what about the stereotype of the, say, volunteer firefighter who's Mm. actually a firebug who gets off on lighting a fire and then being a hero and going and fighting it? It does exist, Um, unfortunately. It does exist. It's not overly common by any means, but the reason that the story is out there is because there absolutely are observable cases where that has happened and enough that it is a recognised phenomenon. It's not kind of one or two here or there. It's a recognised phenomenon, not just in Australia, but in other places. That said, you know, particularly somewhere like Australia where we have, a, you know, many, many thousands of volunteer firefighters and professional firefighters, it's a tiny, infinitesimal number of people within that, you know, many thousands of people who, who where that's going on. Um, so it's not something to, you know, suspect all firefighters of by any means. No. Um, but but it absolutely it, it it does it does exist. It's just that um it's it's really quite uncommon. But mm. but it's something that as professionals in my field we are aware of. And I'm assuming and, and the, the CFA is aware of it as well, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah 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 definitely. Fire services are aware of that that, that it's an issue. Um, and it's something they're quite conscious of. What are your feelings around all of this furor, all of this kind of social media discussion at the moment? It's almost as though you can't acknowledge that both things exist yeah. publicly, that yeah. arson and climate change both yeah. exist. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's fundamentally the problem is that the reality is it's both. Mm. I mean, look, I'm not a climate change scientist. So I'm not going to pretend to be I'm not a scientist at all, so you're ahead of me, Troy. about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but equally, you know, I think that, that there's enough evidence of both things to say that both things are probably relevant. And to say that you think one is relevant or is not to discount the other I think obviously there have been some much more kind of malicious efforts to make arson appear more relevant than it seems to be. Uh, and I think that also can't be discounted, but, but it doesn't mean that any discussion of arson is unwarranted in Tasmania. It does seem that arson has been the cause of, of a significant number of the, the bushfires that had um, this, this season. That's not the case necessarily in other states of Australia where it does seem to be more other, other causes. But regardless of whether it's been relevant to this bushfire season at all, the reality is every year we have tens of thousands of deliberately lit vegetation fires and with climate change making things drier and hotter and the fire season going longer, more of those deliberately lit fires are going to turn into problems. So it's both. It's not one, it's not the other, it's both. And I think, you know, we all need to kind of take a step back and recognise what we all know, which is that the world's a complex place and that two things can be true at once. What a perfect note to leave it on. Thank you so <laughs> much for your time. No worries at all, Michelle. Thank you so much. After the break, we'll get to know more about one arsonist in particular. But first, thank you to the following patrons of Australian True Crime. Zoe Flowers, Kayla Marie White, Amanda Martin, Rachel Edwards, Jodie Eel, Lisa Gillick and Maya Leland. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Welcome back to Australian True Crime, and thank you to everyone who's become a patron of our show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you, Adrian Coit-King, Nicole Bowers, Nathan Marwick, and Peach Cream. Chloe Hooper's book, The Arsonist, is a thorough account of what happened when Brendan Sokolok started a fire in Churchill in the Latrobe Valley on what became known as Black Saturday in 2009. Emily spoke to Chloe about what she learned during her research. Brendan Sokolok, what prompted your interest in him in particular? Well, obviously Black Saturday was such a devastating day and there were hundreds of fires that broke out around Victoria in the 46 degree heat and with gale force wind. Of those fires, five of them um, killed people and initially three of them appeared to have been deliberately lit and that just seemed incomprehensible to me that somebody could knowingly start a firestorm. So I wanted to know really who, is, who becomes an arsonist and why? I think arson is a really fascinating topic because it's so, you know, one small action can create that just uncontrollable result. And some of our listeners have often asked us to follow up cases about arsonists. So I, I did a few arson cases when I was a reporter and, and often it's it's so intriguing the people who are the arsonists. like. You know, one guy I did a court case about, every time he got drunk, he would go and light fires. And he was just his suburban dad, like, you know, he looks normal. Yeah. I I think that one of the things that fascinates us is that we're all fascinated by fire. I mean, we're, we're, we're wired to be fascinated 
by fire. It's it's what sort of has driven human civilization. You know, we we got together and told stories around the fire and were warmed by it and could, you know, cook food on it. And when it turns against us, it's a fiend. So how did you start? So, you know, you're an outsider going into these fire-ravaged communities and there was a lot of suspicion, distrust in some of those communities about, you know, people coming in to sort of look from the outside. How did you go with that? How did you gain the trust of people? Brendan Sokolok was arrested five days after Black Saturday and maybe a couple of days after that I drove to Churchill, the town that he where he was raised and lived and the fire he'd lit was four kilometres outside of Churchill in the Latrobe Valley in on the edge of a, of a eucalypt plantation. I looked around the town and, and I could see that it was so devastated and it just didn't feel appropriate to be hanging around but the story stuck in my mind and so about five years later I tried sort of various ways to find a way in and it's a bit like you know trying to get into a foreign country I think trying to get into a story but eventually the person who cooperating with this was one of the arson squad detectives who had arrested Brendan and so with the permission of Victoria Police he and some of his colleagues spoke to me about you know the days after the fire and uh, how their investigation went and and how they found Brendan and they took me to the site where the fire had been lit or there were two, two fires had been lit, which was what led them to initially be certain the fire was, a, you know, maliciously or deliberately lit. And it took me a couple of years, but I also then spoke to the legal aid lawyers who had represented Brendan and that then kind of led me into his side of the story. Yeah, I found the the detail about the police investigation in your interaction with police was really strong in the book. So I think for listeners, it just gives it that added weight when you're doing a story because people really want to know about the police investigation. So They're amazing. And I have to admit, the first phone conversation I had with Paul Bertoncello, one of these detectives, basically at the end of the conversation, I had to say to him, listen, I've got to tell you something, the last book I wrote was actually about police corruption, which is a a book called The Tall Man set in far north Queensland. And he just sort of waited a beat and said, well, that's not a problem for me. And, you know, these detectives were terrific. And in the things that they had to see and the families they had to talk to, you do get a sense of just the devastation of, of, of what a bushfire can do. I was really intrigued to find out more about Brendan. I mean, he cuts quite a pathetic figure, but you've managed to really, I think, you know, give that humanness to him, even though a lot of people would say he deserves none. What did you discover, I guess, from sort of delving into the person behind the arsonist? He was quite a basic kind of guy, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. It's sort of basic and complicated at the same time. And I think that... If you, if you can't separate, to some extent, the person who lit the fire from, from the fire, just to sort of try to look at him squarely, I think you, you do sort of miss some of the nuances of the story. 
He was 39 years old. He was unemployed. He was considered around the community as a sort of, you know, bit of an odd person to avoid. He spent his days collecting scrap metal. And what he couldn't sell, he would burn in his back garden while, you know, neighbours overheard him listening to kind of children's television. So he'd be listening to Bob the Builder, uh, etc. When the police arrested him, they felt that he was sort of, you know, putting on a kind of impairment to bugger up their interview, really. And that was kind of one of the sort of problematic things for me writing this book was this idea that he was... Some people said that, you know, he appeared to be a kind of complete idiot and other people felt that he was actually much more cunning than that. And the police certainly felt that he was a cunning serial firelighter. His lawyers believed him to be quite a childlike figure who, you know, was bewildered, didn't really understand what was going on in court. You know, he was diagnosed post-arrest as having an intellectual disability and also being on the autism spectrum. And in a way, I think perhaps both sides were right. I think your book certainly gives a good balance. You know, The Tall Man's an incredible book. Your writing is very considered. I think that's why it was the right kind of writing for this subject, I think. What did you discover that surprised you? Was there anything that you discovered that surprised you about arson and the nature of arsonists that you hadn't thought of before that you could share with the listeners? Look, I didn't have a sort of preconceived idea of of who would do this. I mean, I guess it seemed such an antisocial thing to do. I mean, I think that there's a lot of kind of antisocial or compulsive or sort of psychotic elements to the behaviour. I think people light fires for a multitude of reasons which might overlap. So somebody like Brendan Sokolok, I'm sure there's an element of revenge in there. This is a man who was badly bullied, you know, throughout a lot of his life and certainly his school years and, you know, treated like the village idiot by everybody. I mean, in a way, lighting a fire at the chance to sort of, you know, have some revenge against those folk he thought belittled him and yet at the same time it also provides a chance to kind of be a hero and save everybody, you know, which is there are a lot of um, people who are kind of, you know, slightly obsessed with the fire fire services and the CFA who, who are involved in lighting fires. But in the end, Brendan actually denies having lit the fire so he isn't actually going to be able to furnish us with any reason why he did it. Brendan was at one stage a volunteer firefighter, wasn't he? That's right. And and it tends to be the case that, you know, although only a very, very small percentage of volunteer firefighters are arsonists, uh, there's quite a high percentage of arsonists who have some connection to the CFA or, or, or whatever fire services in the area. There's a chance that he was thrown out of the CFA as a you know, a very young adult for um, lighting fires, but this was never actually recorded. Yeah. And I mean, it was you know astonishing to me too that you know on 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 day dot of this investigation in Latrobe Valley, I mean, it's not a huge population. The arson squad arrive, and there are you know more than thirty names of known or suspected firebugs in the area. So that's a lot of people to be sort of sifting through. And, you know, Brendan wasn't on that list, so that's only the people they knew. 
such an easy thing, isn't it? Yeah. You just need a flame and a quiet bush road. And, uh, you know, on that day, obviously, too, it was just so hot that most people weren't leaving the house. That's right. So no one's really going to be watching or seeing anything suspicious necessarily. What I um I really thought was very poignant in your book too is you talk to um you know families and people affected by what happened and some of the families of the people who died and how did you find that? I mean, we're always interested in this podcast about the ripple effect on the community and their people. So without giving too much away about the book, but how did you find that? Well, it's funny that you say the ripple effect because, you know, one thing that felt clear to me was that the effects of this fire will get felt for generations. I suppose most intensely by the people who lost loved ones. I didn't approach anybody who had lost a family member. I left it actually to the police to ask whether or not some of those people would be prepared to speak to me. And I have ended up coming close to Shirley Gibson, a woman who lost two children in this fire. And she's a really remarkable woman. And she would tell you that she didn't know how strong she was until she survived this and I mean that's a pretty brutal way to learn that lesson and she still has bad days but pretty amazing to come through that without the kind of bitterness that I think I might perhaps feel. It's very poignant the what's written about Shirley and also her sons it's sort of the family bonds you know the the brothers died together and um There was a story in particular that always sticks in my mind. There was a a young couple who were sort of in the beginnings of their relationship. I think they both worked at the University of Melbourne and they went out on a picnic to Marysville that day and obviously they died in that fire, but they just, I think, God, that's just, it's so horrible what happened to people. And also just the sheer dumb luck. I mean, that's something the police have said to me. You know, if you zigged one way, you lost your life, if you zagged the other just through fate, you survived. And our ideas of staying to defend your house have changed. We're so suburban in a way, a lot of Australians, and this reminds us of the realities of living in the Australian bush. That's right. I know um, for some of the people who died and lost their homes in the Yarra Valley area, what came out was that People were just not yet aware of living in the bush, so they moved out sort of for a lifestyle property, but they weren't necessarily used to living in that environment, so they just had no idea about when to when to leave. I remember when I heard that Brian Naylor, the newsreader, had died. I think that really, for people outside of Victoria, I think that really brought the seriousness of it to people, I guess, because, you know, he, he died defending his home with his wife. And I think because everyone sort of knew who he was, it was, yeah, quite shocking, yeah. wasn't it? It is. And, uh, but I, you know, I, I guess one, one thing that sort of is significant that, you know, I, I feel we should probably mention too is that of the 173 people who died on Black Saturday, actually 12 of them died in two deliberately lit fires and actually everybody else passed away in fires that had been created through infrastructure failings, so yep. power lines coming down, etc. 
a very real um, fear of arsonists, but we also have to hold power companies to account too. That's right, absolutely, because, you know, it was the weather, yeah, the, mm. the failing of the infrastructure, and it was just like a tinderbox, wasn't it? Because it just, yeah, that's everything's right. so dry. And So how long did it take you to research and write this book? How long was the process? I had a baby in the middle of it, so I feel like there were like long periods where I wasn't actually working as as efficiently as I might have, but it took a good four years. How did it differ doing this to doing um, The Tall Man, which was, you know, a critically acclaimed book, a very important book? I guess you had police cooperation with the arsonist would be. That was a big part. Unfortunately, I never got to interview Chris Hurley, the police officer at the, at the centre of the tall man, who also I never got to interview Brendan Sokoloff, the figure at the centre of the arsonist. You tried, though. I know that's a... I tried. Yeah. I tried. He's in prison. He was told even if he wanted to speak that the prison wouldn't facilitate the interview. And, you know, there, there were some... There were some other ways that, that it might have worked out, but those things weren't going to fall into line. So, you know, it was frustrating. I, I would have, of course, liked to have met Brendan. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I would have kind of come away knowing more about why he'd set this fire. So I guess I do feel like by talking to the people who, who knew him best, you know, he still the centre of the story. Do you know how how he's faring in prison, like what life's like for him? Whereabouts is he in prison, do you know? He's now in a medium security prison in the in the country. I believe that he spends his days making flat pack furniture. As I understand it, he's somebody who likes routine. I guess that that's something that, that prison does provide. So one of the psychologists who... Uh, who spent some time with Brendan found him to have quite a flattened affect, uh, yeah. meaning that, you know, he doesn't tend to get incredibly happy or necessarily incredibly sad, or at least if he does, they're not in sort of terms which can be, you know, easily communicated to others. I mean, autism is a disorder that affects social relationships, but people on the spectrum do really like routine. And yeah, as I, as I said, that's something in jail that you, you sure get. And did you encounter a lot of, um, when you were speaking to people, I know that um, Shelley Gibson has her particular philosophy and, and the readers can read about that in the book, but what was the feeling about him? Look, there are others who, who, you know, will never forgive him, you know, and who believe that he was more bad than mad. If you've lived through that sort of fire and seen the devastation that follows, you know, who am I to judge that perspective? Yeah. As I understand it, arson psychologists do believe that often older arsonists have a more malicious intention to their sort of fire-setting behaviour than, say, younger kids who are experimenting. But then again, there's also us and psychologists can sometimes split autistic firelighters from other neurotypical fire setters because those on the spectrum can respond to the sort of light show of fire in a kind of completely different way. I hate to sort of, you know, use that cliche, but it's complicated. Yeah, well, it certainly is. It's, And that's what we discover, and you'll know it better than anyone. Things are just not black and white. You can't just say bad, mad, good. It's a blend of, of greys, isn't it? That's it. And I guess in this um, increasing age of quick sound bites and just condemnation on social media, I think we've lost that 
art of nuance, which is why your book is so great. Your writing is is fantastic. What's next on your radar? Uh, I'm I'm writing something which is sort of you know for my kids. Actually, they keep saying, "What about me?" <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, try. It might be an, it might be a book for them that they read as adults, but um, you know, I'm gonna give it a, give it a whirl. One of the things that's nice about finishing off a project is you get to have a new set of, of obsession. I've written this book while I've got two little boys who are like pushing fire trucks around on the ground, which yeah. has been sometimes a bit of a weird junction. Although it also shows how deeply wired some children's imagination, the idea of kind of heroism and firefighting, go. And I don't doubt that was sort of the case for Brendan Sokolak as well. That's Chloe Hooper and her excellent books, The Arsonist and The Tall Man, Death and Life on Palm Island, which is about the death in custody of Cameron Dumagee, are both available in the bookstore on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com. Thank you for downloading this episode. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.